And what I want to do here in this message is kind of get an, a look at the uh, theology of baptism, what it represents, what it pictures. And then before we uh, see our dear brother enter into the waters of baptism, just say a few practical thoughts. So Romans chapter 6 is where we are today. Verse 3 is where I'm going to begin. And uh, this is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Father in heaven, we do come now to you and we recognize that this is your holy, infallible, inscripturated word for us, your people. So we ask and pray that you would bless the reading of it, the preaching of it. Pray that your spirit would fill me that I would be um, less, that I would decrease, that you would increase. Pray that all of our hearts and minds and ears would be prepared and ready to receive the trustworthy word. Lord, keep us from the distractions of life, all of the stuff that is weighing on all of us that we have to do, questions before us, struggles of today. May all that be laid aside for this hour that we might receive your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider this, this um, concept of baptism, what I want to say from the outset is that in baptism, a person is identifying with something else and someone else. The baptizee in going under the water is identifying with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. So it's not so much about what the person is doing. That's important. It is a step of obedience to Christ, but it is more about what Christ has already done and accomplished. It is an outward sign of an inward reality, namely union with Christ and all of his benefits as our mediator. But as we look at this text, I read a larger section. We're going to focus on the first few verses that I read, and we're going to see three points, three, three headings here. Um, for this message. The first one is this. Baptism is a sign 
that a death has occurred. Baptism is a sign that a death has occurred. Again, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Amen indeed. So what a glorious reality that Paul explains here for the Christian. And I just wanted to be clear and say that he speaks here of all believers. This is not kind of the higher life Christianity or where we get when we're down that road as a seasoned disciple. But he speaks here of the the state of any and all true born-again Christians. That you, Christian, today, now, if you are in Christ, are so um, closely united with Jesus. The word that, or the, the metaphor, if you will, that the Bible often uses is that you are married to Christ. Right? He is our groom and we are his bride. And if you think about a marriage, there is so much intimacy and closeness. It is a lifelong bond and sacred covenant between two people where they commit themselves to one another forever. Right? You think of the intimacy, the closeness, the daily living of life together between husband and wife. You then, as you've been married to Christ, united to Jesus, are so closely united with him that when he died, you actually die. That that old man in Adam talked about Adam and being in Adam last week. That old man in Adam, he died with Christ. He was actually crucified with Jesus, as Paul says here, that the body of sin be brought to nothing, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, these are great verses to memorize. They encourage our hearts. But sometimes, if someone asks us, what does it mean that you've died with Christ? It may be difficult to really answer a question like that. You know, we might kind of go in circles, present company included, on what exactly that means. I've been crucified with Jesus. It's an amazing memory verse. But what, what exactly is the Bible getting at? I think there's two important elements that I want to discuss briefly of what it means to have died with Christ. Number one, if you're here today and you're a true believer, a born-again Christian, then you now, because you've died with him, you have a new disposition towards God. A new disposition towards God. As Joel Beakey said, it is no longer sheer enmity towards God from you. It is no longer just hostility, just rebellion, or just animosity. But you have a new disposition towards God as the old man has died. Think about the, the life of a person B.C., before Jesus. Whether you were five or whether you were 50 or anywhere in between or after or what have you, there was a point where you were dead and you came alive in Jesus. But before that point, when it was still B.C., before Christ, there was no battle taking place within you between the spirit and the flesh. The flesh had won. 
It had conquered you because there was no opposing force within you that was doing battle against the wiles of your own flesh. Now, you had a God, you had a God given conscience for sure that testified to you things that were right and things that were wrong as imperfect as our conscience is. Paul says that it either accuses or excuses. It either says, hey, red flag, that's wrong. Or it says, oh, you're good to go. Proceed. Go for it. Right. But it's not always accurate. Right. And we can definitely sear and harm and and, and, and twist our conscience. So you knew to some degree right and wrong, but all of that wrestling was sourced in the old man. It was sourced in the flesh. There was no spirit within you competing and waging war against the flesh. But now in Christ, with this new disposition towards God, you have a new mindset. A new mindset that desires to please the Lord. That you did not have when you were dead to God and alive in yourself. You now live, Lord willing, not for your own glory, but for the glory of Christ. You now recognize that He is the King and not yourself. You recognize that His kingdom is the one that we ought to build, not, not our own. We recognize that His law is not a burden, but a delight. Consider the perspective of a person before Christ. The law of God is oppression. right? It's, it's rules and it's the taking away of freedoms. But consider now the law of God as you are a Christian. It is a loving guide to keep you from destroying yourself and harming yourself. And it teaches us how to please God. Previously, you were at enmity with God. It was hostility and rebellion. Now it is obedience, faith, and peace. So firstly, you have a new disposition towards God. Secondly, a new disposition towards sin. A new disposition towards sin. By God's grace, Christian, you now see sin for what it is. You've seen its ugly face. You understand it, that it is a holy offense against your Creator, that it is vile and destructive, and it leads only to misery and death. Paul said in verse 14 of our passage that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law as a covenant, but now under grace as a covenant. And that means that sin dominates the life of an unbeliever. That is not to say that they would sin without restraint, that it's just reckless abandon, as wicked as I can possibly be. But again, there is no presence of God the Spirit waging war against those sinful desires. But now in Christ, if you're here today in Jesus, then there is a great conflict that takes place within you daily. As your flesh seeks to rear its ugly head, and as you, by the power of the Spirit, as Paul says, put to death the deeds of the flesh, that sinful nature has not been erased this side of glory, but you have been awoken to the reality of your depravity, and now by the Spirit of God, you are waging war against the flesh. Your desire is no longer to please self, but it is to please God, to delight in His law perfectly, Yet there is remaining corruption that is in us. As Paul says, I do the things that I know are wrong. I don't want to do them, but oh, wretched man that I am, I run to those things. And the things I know 
that I should not do, I do, and I should do, I don't do. <laughs> so you see there's an already not yet element in all of this. You've died with Christ. You've been awoken to the power and presence of sin, yet it will not be completely eradicated this side of glory. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He was crucified and I was crucified with him. Speaks of the decisiveness of the death of the old man. Uh, Galatians 6.14, he says, Far be it from me to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And I appreciate here the New Living Translation kind of brings out the meaning a bit more. It says, because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has died also. So my stake, my claim now as a Christian in this world has been put to death and the world's stake or interest in me now in Christ has also died with him. So firstly, baptism is a sign that a death has occurred. And let me just pause real quick and, and ask you a question. As we think about, this is my little apologetic for baptism by immersion. As we think about this picture of a person dying with Christ, right? Some people dunk, we dunk, full immersion. Some people pour and some people sprinkle, right? Different traditions, different Christian traditions. Now, which one of those three pictures a person dying with Christ and being rose again? It is only immersion that you would get that connection, I would think. If you pour a bucket of water on someone's head, you're not necessarily going to see this full picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So it would seem to me that baptism by immersion is the only one that rightly shows what is being pictured here that Paul is speaking of. So number one, a, 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 a baptism is a sign that a death has occurred. Number two, baptism is a sign that a new life has been born. Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too ought to walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we see here that it's not just that something old has gone away, but something new has come. So by virtue of your union, Christian, with Jesus in his resurrection, you have now been reborn. Second birthday, amen? Eternal birthday, born to eternal life. Remember Nicodemus was, was racking his mind, what are, you, what are you talking about? How can I be born again? My mom birthed me and I can't do that over again. How in the world is this to take place? John Calvin in, in his commentary is responding to people that might say, when we look to the cross, we see there an example. We look to Jesus and we see his sacrifice, and that means I should sacrifice also. I should die to myself because he died. Now that's true, but much more is taking place. He says this. He says the death of Christ is effectual or efficacious to destroy and demolish 
the depravity of our flesh. The death of Jesus is able to destroy and demolish the depravity of our flesh, and his resurrection is able to effect the renovation of a better nature. It's kind of an old technical theological term, renovation of the soul. That means that we have been, beloved, if you are a Christian, recreated. Your soul has been renovated. It has been on an episode of Fixer Upper, and it has been completely Renew, that was a terrible joke. My apologies. <laughs> but our soul has been reborn, renewed. The Bible has all sorts of different language for this. The new birth, a resurrection, a new life, a new creature, a renewing of the mind, dying to sin, living to righteousness, a translation from darkness to light. You have been resurrected with Jesus. Again, Sounds very profound, but what the heck does it actually mean to be resurrected with Jesus? Because I wasn't there when he was come out of that tomb, and I don't believe you were either. So what does it mean to be resurrected with Christ? I think we could say this simply. It means that you are now new. You are now new in Jesus. You may be familiar, some of you, with a man, a pastor named Jeff Durbin. He has kind of a big ministry on YouTube um, but he tells the story of how he was, in his early days in ministry, he worked in a drug rehab. And he was kind of the, the pastor there of this program. And however the, the situation worked, there was two programs, a secular program and a Christian program. And they shared the same building, and they went to their meetings, AA, NA, 12-step sort of things, together. And Pastor Jeff tells the story of how he would often get in trouble because of the things that his people would go and say in the meeting. So if you've ever been to AANA or seen a movie or what have you, you know the typical thing is, my name is Mike, and I'm an alcoholic, right? My name is Tom, and I'm addicted to Oxycontin, whatever it might be. They're identifying with their, their past, and his people would come and say, uh, my name is Tim, and I am new in Jesus. And he kept getting called, as he says, to the principal's office, because they were his people were kind of, um, I don't know, you know, his people were um, kind of diminishing the work of AA by saying, no, I'm, I'm completely restored now. I'm new in Jesus. I've experienced resurrection life. That means that, church, if you're new in Jesus, you have new passions, the stuff that you used to be excited about is probably not the stuff that used to get you excited. You have new pleasures, new things that you enjoy doing in this life. Namely, Sunday is marked off for the worship of the triune God. You have a new purpose. Again, not to build my kingdom on this earth, but to build his, to be a little cog in his eternal kingdom that he's given me the privilege of working for and with in this life. You have new principles, new foundation of truth, a whole new worldview. I mean, we see this world through a radically different lens than we did when we were dead in our sin. Basically, now we have renewed minds. No longer conformed to this world, but transformed to the image of God. I want to read a quote to you from J.I. Packer. He says, the Bible conceives salvation as the redemptive renewal of man. 
the redemptive renewal of man, and it is on the basis of a restored relationship with God in Christ. He goes on to say that it presents this salvation as a radical and complete transformation wrought in the soul. A radical and complete transformation. So we're talking today, church, about a change in the inner man, as Calvin said, a renovation of the soul. We're not talking about behavior modification. We're not talking about I sin less now than I once did, or I kicked that old habit. We're talking about a transformation from within. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm sure you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away, and behold, new has come. Or Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We're talking about a renewal of the inner man, this resurrection life. As he was resurrected, we have been resurrected. So if you're here today and you have experienced union with Christ in his death and resurrection, that means that it is impossible to continue living unchanged in regards to sin. I want to say that again. If you've experienced union with Christ in his death and resurrection, it is impossible to continue living unchanged in regards to sin. This work that God does is so powerful that you will be changed. You will be transformed. You will have a new desire to seek, to know, and to please King Jesus. And actually, the reason that Paul writes this chapter that we're reading is to address this very question. Should Christians just continue on in sin as if it's no big deal? He's actually not seeking to teach primarily about baptism, but he's using all that we're reading as simply an illustration as to why we should not continue in sin. Romans chapter one, verse or Romans chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means right and he just got done saying the more you sin the more grace you will receive and then the more great the more you sin the more grace you receive the, the 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 pointer is this when paul addresses the thing that you have in mind you need to change your approach right he loves to he, he knows the first place our flesh is going to go well then what's the big deal I mean, I can sin because grace is going to abound. He's going to show more grace. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he gets into this exposition of what has happened in Christ and what is pictured in baptism. Again, we are not talking about behavior modification, but we are talking about the inward renewal of the whole man. Let me see if I can't illustrate this with a story. And if you've been here long enough, I apologize. You probably heard this, but hopefully your memory is as good as mine and you won't remember. <laughs> um, but this story is not uh, original to me. Uh, one of the things that, that happens when you become a preacher is you, it's, it's, it's okay to steal. It's okay to steal other guys' 
stories. Um, but I have sheep. I really don't. But I have sheep in my yard, and they're good. We have a good relationship, these sheep and I. Um, I take care of them. They feed on the grass. I cut off their wool every now and then, and it's a great relationship that we have. The sheep are not a problem, but there is one problem that I do have, and that is a wolf. And there is a wolf that is coming into my yard and every now and then plucking off a sheep, just doing what wolves do, right? So I have a few options at my disposal to try to deal with this wolf. One of them is I can just terminate the wolf. I can shoot him if I get a shot at him. I could poison the wolf. And at that point, my problem is, is, is done, right? My sheep are safe and I'm good to go. It doesn't really help the wolf if I end his life. I have another option. I could trap the wolf, put a trap out there, bait him into a cage, trap him, and then build a cage and basically lock him up in that cage. Now, at that point, my problem is solved, right? I'm no longer losing sheep. I'm good to go. Now, that wolf is going to sit in that cage every day of his life trying to escape. He's going to sit there drooling as he looks at my sheep, desiring to eat more sheep because he's a wolf, right? He's going to test the door, the hinges, the roof, the sides. He's going to do all that he can to try to escape from this cage. And actually, him being there restrained is not going to subdue his desire to eat sheep. It's just going to make it stronger because he's simply being restrained from escaping and eating sheep. See, that second option is what religion actually is. It is simply a cage or an edifice that we build around our lives to keep ourselves from doing things that we deem as wrong. Maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's life in a church. Maybe it's even the Bible. If we just take it as law and put rules on our life, maybe it's things as I just mentioned like AA, NA. You can put a lot of borders around your life so that you don't practice those sins, but you will still be a wolf in a cage with a heart desiring to eat sheep. But I have another option. If I had the ability, I could transform that wolf into a sheep. See, now his nature has been changed. No longer does he want to eat my sheep, but he is one of them. His passions, his desires, his pleasures, everything about him will be transformed. And this is what it means to, to find resurrection life in Jesus. It is to be radically transformed, not just rules and structures put around us so that we don't do things that are wrong, but an actual heart transplant and a renovation of our nature so that our desires and passions change. Now, if we were to look at raw statistics, if you're into that sort of thing, there, it is very likely that some of you here today are still wolves. I'm not saying you're here to harm the church or out, even out to deceive. But what I'm saying, it is very likely that some here today have used religion as a fence around your life. You have used rules and laws to stop you from doing things that you deem is wrong, but deep down inside, you still desire those things. Your heart has not been transformed, and if you are honest, you know that you still want to break out 
and eat those sheep. See, we can stop ourselves from enacting certain sins, but it is only the gospel of grace and the salvation that Jesus brings that is able to recreate a dead, wretched heart to now love God and live for Him out of the joy of our hearts. Or His law is no longer a burden, but a delight. And friend, if that is you today, that cage does not save. There is refuge, but it is only in Jesus Christ. The call today is to flee from your sin. To free, flee from that old life. As Don said this morning, he brought up the song, I surrender all. Is there something that you're clinging to that you're unwilling to lay down at the feet of Jesus? Lay it down today and place your faith in Christ. Paul speaks of here a death, burial, and resurrection that you will be made new if you are in Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, it says there, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not that are on this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with God. This language is all over the New Testament, specifically in the epistles. Basically, it says this, Be who you are. Be who you already are in Jesus. You have died and you have been raised. So put off those old ways. Put off the old man. Take off those grave clothes. Let him die and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are new in Jesus. If you are in Christ, walk in him. I want to read to you a quote from the eminent theologian in residence, Dustin Ehrlich over here. He said, if I could go back to my baptism, what I would wish would have been further drilled into me is that concrete reality of being identified with Christ's death and resurrection. That old wretch that I would be warring with all of my life has been definitively crucified with Christ. He died for my sin, and I died with him. And I want to add, I am now new in Jesus. Baptism is a sign that these things have taken place. Lastly and briefly, baptism is a seal or promise from Christ, and thus a means of grace. As Christ commands his church to baptize converts in the triune name, Father, Son, and Spirit, he puts his visible seal on his own when they obediently enter into the water of baptism. As a, as a person enters into baptism, they see in visible form the fact that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. So this is a means of grace then for the participant. As Christ bestows grace on the receiver of baptism, as their faith is grounded and strengthened, that so certainly as they have entered those waters, so surely has Jesus Christ died for their sin. But it is also a means of grace for the witnesses, as we will soon see, that our faith, those that watch a baptism, our faith is renewed and strengthened as we rejoice in our brother 
identifying with Jesus, we are reminded that Christ has died for our sins. That we too have died, have been raised, and have received remission of our sin. Baptism is a sign that a death has occurred, that a new life has come, and it is also a seal of Christ promising the certainty of all of His saving benefits pictured in this sacrament. So I'm going to close this sermon there, and as we talk about baptism, I want to just give this uh, definition. I think it's helpful. It says, Baptism is a church's act, a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking him off from the world. Two things that it said there. Baptism is a church's act and a person's act. We often think of just one. God bless you, Bev. But firstly, the, the, the baptism is a public act of faith by the recipient of baptism. It is clear in Scripture that those who repent and believe ought to be baptized. It is the first public act of faith for a believer, and it is their entrance into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, it's a public commitment to Jesus, picturing an inward reality. Right? Baptism does not save but it is a sign that salvation has come to this person. It is going public, if you will, for Jesus. We often stop there, but it's also an act of the church. The church is affirming one's profession of faith when they are immersing the person in water. We are recognizing that this person bears the fruit of repentance and faith. And as far as we can tell, according to their confession of faith, that they seem to be a repentant believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord indeed. So 